Hey guys, Jason here. I just wanted to give a little update of everything that's going on. Uh, the podcast has been on a bit of a break just because, well, a lot's been happening. One, uh, I said in a previous episode that I was going to be moving soon. Uh, that's still happening, but I'm not just moving, I'm actually buying a house. And a lot has been going into that. Uh, most of my free time has been spent trying to get that all in order. And, uh, Boy, it has uh, not been easy. I've been looking around at a lot of different places. Finally found a place I liked. Uh, had an inspector go through it. There were some issues. Made an offer. The people selling the house didn't like the offer. Um, they thought it was too little. You know, it... Anyway, I, I don't want to bore you with the details of that. Also... <laughs> It's funny, since we last recorded, I had mentioned that I was going to be moving soon, but in in the time period from when we last recorded to when this episode came out, Ashley has also moved, and um, we're working on getting a setup to be able to record, uh, you know, in her new area because she doesn't really have that great of internet access right now, Uh, but... That's all being figured out. Um, so yeah, and you know, uh, the holidays came and went, and uh, that time of the year where seasonal depression affects people with it, and I know for a fact that I have that, and so I was just on top of the stress of trying to get the house and get everything in order in my apartment and getting ready for the move. Uh, I just, with what little free time I had, I didn't feel motivated to edit and get the podcast out on time, and that's not fair to you guys, the listeners. So I'm trying to get everything back in order. Um, the schedule's changed a little bit for the upcoming weeks. Uh, we're still going to be doing everything that we were working on. We're uh, looking into recording more episodes of Game We have some episodes of Game of Thrones banked already, uh, and the book comparisons, so those should be coming out soon. And we have gone through all the Disney episodes that we had recorded, the Disney movies, I should say, Um, but we're going to be recording some more of those soon. And then after we finish up with Game of Thrones, we're going to get back into Once Upon a Time. So, you know, bear with us through this transitional period. Uh, Thank you for those of you who are sticking around to listen to it. Um, and we hope to be back on schedule and back on track right away, and thanks, and, you know, here's the episode. Rumpelstiltskin always says that magic comes with a price, but for this price, you can get a nice piece of jewelry. Use code ONCEPOD for 10% off your first order at Unusual Magic Jewelry on Etsy. Click the link in the description. Hello, and welcome to the Once Again Podcast. We are your hosts, Ashley and Jason. On today's episode, we will be discussing Game of Thrones Season 1, Episode 3, Lord Snow. This episode was written by David Benioff and D.B. Wise, adapted from George R.R. Martin's A Game of Thrones, and directed by Brian Kirk. It premiered May 1st, 2011, and had a viewership of 2.44 million. In a brief synopsis, arriving at King's Landing after his long journey, Ned is shocked to learn of the crown's debt from his new advisors. At Castle Black, Jon Snow impresses Tyrion at his expertise over the greener recruits. Suspicious that the Lannisters had a hand in Bran's fall, Catelyn covertly follows her husband to King's Landing, where she is intercepted by Peter Baelish, aka Littlefinger, a shrewd longtime ally and brothel owner. Cersei and Jamie ponder the implications of Bran's recovery, Arya studies swordsmanship, and on the road to Vaestothrak, Daenerys finds herself at odds with Viserys. And I just want to once again give a reminder before diving into the episode proper, 
that our episodes for Game of Thrones are going to be split into two. The first part will focus on the HBO series, and the second will be a book comparison. And when you know the shows and the books go their separate way, Ashley and I will be giving our speculations and theories on where the books are going. After we recap the episode, Ashley and I will engage in a full spoilers discussion involving later episodes, uh, later seasons, and as well as material from the books. We'll alert you when the full spoiler section comes up. So if you want to skip to the end of the podcast after that, we understand. And finally, if you're unaware, Game of Thrones has a much more violent and adult-themed world than Once Upon a Time. We will be discussing subjects which some may find triggering and inappropriate for younger listeners. So let's dive into the episode. I first want to say that this episode is dedicated in memory of Margaret John, who plays Old Nan, who sadly passed away on February 2nd, 2011, after a brief illness. And a little trivia note, there are three scenes in this episode that were filmed after the episode was already cut. The episode was running short, and these scenes were filmed to pad for time. And I'll point out each scene after we discuss it. Can't wait to see if these scenes are pointless, and I'm going to be like, why did we do this? (laughs) Well, you'll see. So let's start off with scene one. The royal party arrives at King's Landing and are greeted by the royal steward, played by Robert Stern, in the courtyard of the Red Keep. He tells Eddard Stark that a meeting of the small council has already been convened and asks him to attend. Eddard orders Jory to get the rest of the party settled while he attends the meeting. The court herald suggests that Eddard might want to change into something more appropriate, but Eddard just stares at him until he turns to lead the way. I have two notes here, the first one I have written down. When the royal steward greets Eddard and says that Grand Maester Picel has called a meeting of the small council, the steward mispronounces Maester as Meister. The correct pronunciation is actually Maester. This was a reportedly common mistake on the set, which took the cast some time to get right. And the other note is, I love in this scene, you know, in my summary, it says that he just stares at him. But in the actual episode, when uh, he says, do you want to get changed? He just takes off his riding gloves. <laughs> like uh, Eddard Stark, just Sean Bean just takes off the riding yeah. gloves that he was wearing. And uh, it, it it's different in the books. I'll give a small spoiler for the book, but Ned makes a much bigger deal about having to change. Yeah, it's actually pretty much the opposite where the yeah. steward is like, oh, you got to go. And he's like, I need time to go yeah, get changed I, into I, something I, appropriate. Yeah, I'm a lord and hand of the king. I have to, oh, let me borrow and some clothes I've just clothes gotten done from quick. a lot of riding. I yeah. can't just go to a meeting. Yeah, and I actually like the show change better. I, I think it fits better with Ned's character, but that's just me. In scene two, on his way to the small council chamber, Eddard passes through the throne room. He finds Jamie Lannister sitting at the foot of the Iron Throne. Jamie tells him that it's good he's here as they need some stern northern leadership. Eddard baits Jamie about the state of his armor and how it, there isn't a scratch on it, indicating that Jamie has chosen his opponents wisely. Irritated, Jamie tells Eddard about how his father and brother were killed in this very room and 500 men stood and did nothing. It was silent apart from the screams and the Mad King's laughter. Later, when Jamie killed the Mad King, he recalled the screams of Eddard's father as he burned and said that it felt like justice. Eddard is incredulous that Jamie would suggest he betrayed his sworn oath for Eddard's father. Jamie sarcastically asks if Eddard would have approved if he had stabbed Ares in the belly rather than the back, to which Ned reports that Jamie served Ares well when serving was safe. It really is uh, quite a horrible way that Ned's father and brother died in the throne yeah. room. Um, well, I don't this... really like, I don't really like that scene at all, like the scene at all with Jamie. Like, no? There's something about it that just makes me like, mm. Is it that he's already there in King's Landing? Uh, but like Ned's the first one to arrive, but then Jamie's already there in the throne room. Listen, That'll- the timing on pretty much this entire episode is weird because, you know, it appears that Catelyn shows up after them too, which yeah. like. Yeah, we'll discuss. Yeah. In scene three, Eddard arrives at the small council chamber and greets its members. Varys, played by Colinth Hill, 
the Master of Whispers, Renly Baratheon, played by Gethin Anthony, the Master of Laws, and the youngest of King Robert's two brothers, Grand Maester Pycelle, played by Julian Glover, the King's personal maester and advisor, and Lord Peter Baelish, played by Aidan Gillen, who's also known as Littlefinger, and he serves as the realm's master of coin. Varys tells Eddard that they are praying for Prince Joffrey's full recovery, but Eddard suggests that he could have prayed for the butcher's son instead. Eddard greets Renly warmly, as he hasn't seen him in many years. Renly comments that Ned looks exhausted from traveling and claims that he tried to get the rest of the council to postpone the meeting. He- At least Renly is like, I'm sorry that you've been traveling and need to immediately be in this stupid meeting. Yeah. And another small difference from the book to show, Renly in the books looks exactly like a young Robert. And that's something that really strikes Ned. You know, I guess you could say that Renly and Robert in the show do look kind of similar because they have black hair. But they, you know, I wouldn't really buy Renly as a younger version of Robert. No. Uh, But moving right along, uh, Ned also greets Pycelle, noting that the last time they met, Pycelle was serving a different king. Pycelle gives Eddard the symbol of his office, a badge showing a hand. Eddard greets Littlefinger more formally, noting that he was a friend of his wife's when they were young, and Littlefinger notes that he has a token of esteem from Eddard's late brother, who cut him, though not grievously, during a duel for Catelyn's honor. The meeting is convened to Eddard's surprise. It is customary for the king to, as- to attend such meetings. Renly tells Eddard that Robert never takes part in the meetings, and Varys more politely says that Robert has many burdens but allows his small council to take care of the small matters of the realm. Littlefinger notes that they are the lords of small matters. Renly passes a proclamation from Robert to Eddard, reporting that the king has ordered the realm to stage a tournament in honor of Lord Stark's appointment. Littlefinger asks how much this will cost them. Eddard, slightly astounded, reads the letter. 40,000 gold dragons for the champion, 20,000 to the runner-up, and 20,000 to the winning archer. Pycelle asks if the realm can afford it, and Littlefinger replies yes, as the realm already owes Tywin Lannister 3 million gold dragons, 80,000 isn't much to add. Eddard, getting angry, asks Littlefinger to confirm that the realm is 3 million in debt. Littlefinger replies that it is 6 million in debt, including other creditors. Renly says that Robert has no time for working out where the money comes from, counting coppers, he calls it. He just likes spending it. Eddard refuses to believe that John Aaron let Robert beggar the realm, and Pycelle agrees that Lord Aaron often offered wise and prudent counsel. Unfortunately, Robert often ignored it. Eddard angrily tells the council that there will be no tournament, then pauses and apologizes for his tone, as he is still weary from the road. Varys tells him that they serve at his pleasure. I I like this scene. I think it's a good, you get all these characters. Yeah, and you get you know, how they kind of work together and Mm. you get their relationships, their relationships with Ned. Mm. And uh, Littlefinger steals almost every scene he's in for me. I don't know about for you, but yeah, uh, he's just, he's just great. So let's move to scene four. Queen Cersei is checking Prince Joffrey's wounds. She tells him that they can say what they like about the incident that Joffrey fought off a dire wolf bravely. She even suggests spreading the story that he killed the beast and only spared Arya because of the love his father bore for hers. Cersei says that the truth is malleable for a king that once Ares sat on the Iron Throne and Robert was a rebel and a traitor. When Joffrey sits on the Iron Throne, the truth will be what he makes it. It's just such great advice to give to this little psychopath. Yeah. Yeah. You could do whatever. Uh, yes, you... tell your psychopath son that yeah. his truth is the only truth, basically. Yeah. Do whatever you want and then just tell everyone that it's the right thing to do. <laughs> Joffrey asks if he has to marry Sansa, and Cersei confirms that it is so. But he only has to sleep with her when he wants. 
She suggests doing something nice for Sansa and try to repair their rift, but Joffrey is reluctant. Instead, he argues that they are allowing the Northerners too much power, and they consider themselves the equals of the Lannisters and the Baratheons. Cersei asks him how he would handle them, and he suggests doubling their taxes and contributing 10,000 men to a standing royal army. Joffrey thinks that each lord controlling his own force is primitive. If the Northerners were to rebel over this matter, Joffrey would seize Winterfell and install someone loyal, perhaps his uncle Kevin as Warden of the North. When Cersei asks how the Northerners and his royal army would respond to this order, Joffrey replies that they would have no choice but to obey. Cersei tells her son his plan is foolish, the North is too big and too wild to be invaded and occupied. Any occupying army would be annihilated when winter comes. A good king knows when to save his strength and destroy his enemies. Joffrey notes this and then asks his mother if the Starks are their enemies. Cersei replies, anyone who isn't us is an enemy. It's just one of the scenes that they just added in later because I believe that. No. Surprising. Yeah. Because um, this also isn't in the books at all. Like, yeah, no, it's not. It's completely divorced from the books. Yeah. Though I do think it shows that like Joffrey really doesn't want anything to do with Sansa. Mm. Which yeah. is interesting because in the books, he's a little bit more pliable about dealing with Sansa. So. Agreed. I also... I I agree with both of them in this scene. It's, it's going to sound weird to say, but I actually think Joffrey's idea about having a standing royal army isn't a bad idea as far as like progress goes for the realm. Yeah. Like just imagine if the United States, instead of having a United States military, each state had a different military. Like it would be kind of chaotic. Oh, oh, we're going to send the Texans now and then later we'll send, you know, the Californians or whoever you want to say. But it, like, no, it's a better idea to have a united army. But Cersei's right about everything about the North, that it's too big. You can't take control of it, blah, blah, blah. Like, you might be able to get them to give the men for such an army, but you would never be able to just invade it and take over in the manner that he's suggesting. Right. Let's move on to scene five, because each of these episodes is five hours long uh, of this podcast. Um, so like an hour. Yeah, no, but uh, in scene five, Arya and Sansa have a meal with Septa Mordain, who must just be thrilled that there are no more dire wolves around. Um, I didn't think no, about No, now that. she's dealing yeah. with two kids that are upset about their dire wolves, which, yeah. which is worse, really. <sighs> I, I would take, um, you know, angsty preteens over having giant wolves that could attack me at any moment. <laughs> Sorry, that, that, that's just me personally. But Arya and Sansa are having a meal with Septa Mordain. But Arya is angrily stabbing the table with her knife. She tells them that she is practicing for Joffrey, that he is a liar and a coward, and that Micah would still be alive if Sansa had told the truth. Eh, not that last part, but everything else Arya is right about. Mordain tells Arya to leave the room. Eddard arrives and talks to Sansa, giving her a gift of a doll. Sullen, she replies that she hasn't played with dolls since she was eight. <laughs> Eddard looks helplessly at Mordain, noting that War was easier than daughters. As a daughter, I I can confirm. Oh yeah, daughters are not easy. Yeah, I'm not they to steal their hearts and then cause chaos. Uh, my my worst fear is having a daughter someday, because I know from the moment that little baby is born, she will have me wrapped around her finger, and my daughter will never do anything wrong in my eyes. And I'll be like, no, no, um, that person deserved to be murdered. It doesn't matter what type of person my daughter is. Like a son, a son I'll be totally fine with. Like a son will be like, daddy, I'm hungry. I'll be like, well, go make something then. But like a daughter, a daughter of like, she'll, she'll just have me wrapped around her finger from the moment she's born. It's my, it's my worst fear. And I, you know, most of my fears come true. So I know someday I'll probably have a daughter. Let's move on. You got to be dating to get there. No, shh, shush, shush. In scene six, 
In her room, Arya unsheaths her sword. Her father arrives and catches her with it. He notes that it is uh, Mikan's work. She tells him its name and says that she doesn't want to be a lady. Arya blames herself for Micah's death and for asking him to practice with her. Ned reassures her that what happened wasn't her fault. Arya rages at her unhappiness and those she holds responsible, listing primarily the queen, Joffrey, and Sansa. Eddard explains that Sansa could not betray her future husband for all the years of trouble that would cause. Arya is surprised, asking how her father could let her marry someone like that. Eddard, unable to find a good answer, tells her that winter is coming and they must rely on one another in this dangerous place. And Arya admits that she doesn't truly hate her sister over what happened. Eddard tells Arya that she can keep Needle, but she needs to find someone to train her on how to use it. This is kind of like a counter scene to the Joffrey Cersei scene before. Like this, this shows good parenting. And yeah. even, and uh, I like Eddard's smooth move there of like, oh man, I don't have a good answer for this. Let me change the subject. <laughs> but moving on to scene seven, a crow flies into Bran's room in Winterfell. Old Nan, played by Margaret John, a senior servant, is trying to cheer Bran up and offers to tell him stories about Sir Duncan the Tall. Bran tells her he prefers the scary stories. Old Nan starts to tell him about the long night when the land froze under a winter that lasted for years on end, and out of the darkness, the White Walkers came riding their dead horses and hunting with packs of giant spiders. Rob enters and dismisses Old Nan and her stories. He tells Bran how he fell, but Bran still can't remember. Rob is puzzled as he's seen Bran climb a thousand times in all weather and never fall. Bran asks if it is true that he will never walk again, and Rob nods in agreement. Bran says that he would rather be dead. A shocked Rob angrily chastises his little brother for expressing such thoughts, but Bran reiterates that he would rather be dead. Boy. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. In scene eight, Sir Roderick Cassell and Catelyn Stark arrive at King's Landing via a small side gate. Sir Roderick thinks that they are less likely to be noticed this way, but Catelyn thinks the precaution is unnecessary. It's been nine years since she last visited the capital, and no one knew who she was back then. However, they're almost immediately approached by two members of the City Watch. They have been expected and are to go with them. I think that's kind of a humorous scene. Like She's like, oh, no one's going to know me. And then, no one knows me. I'm just a Tully. No yeah. one's ever seen me. Yeah. Lady Stark, come with us. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Surprise Pikachu face, guys. Yeah. In scene nine, Roderick and Catelyn are taken to, of all places, a brothel in the city. They are greeted by Littlefinger. Catelyn is furious at being taken to such a place. Littlefinger apologizes for any perceived disrespect, but they will not be seen here. Catelyn wants to know how he knew she was coming, and Varys enters the room. He tells her that his little birds are everywhere, even in the north, and that they already told him about the dagger and the attempt on her life. Catelyn shows them the dagger, and Varys reluctantly says that he has no idea where it comes from. Littlefinger is amused to know something that Varys does not, and confirms that the dagger belongs to him. He lost it in a wager during a tournament, which was held on Prince Joffrey's last name day. He had bet on Sir Jaime Lannister, as any sane man would, but Sir Loris Tyrell, the Knight of the Flowers, managed to unseat Jaime, and Littlefinger lost the bet. The person who won it was Tyrion Lannister, the imp. I love this scene, just knowing what we know about Littlefinger. I love how yeah. he, he waits for Varys to say he has no idea where the, the blade came from. And then he's like, oh, I know. As I said, I'm, I'm a sucker for Littlefinger. Um, Littlefinger is such a good character. Yeah, especially in the first couple seasons. In scene 10 at Castle Black, Tyrion and Lord Commander Gior Mormont, played by James Cosmo, are looking over the training yard. Sir Alistair Thorne, played by Owen Teal, is putting the new recruits 
through their paces, using Jon Snow's superior castle training to humiliate them. However, he has no praise for Jon, addressing him by the mocking title of Lord Snow and coldly telling Jon that he is the least useless of all the recruits, which is a line I love to use on people. I, I sometimes describe some of my coworkers as the least useless person here. Um, Tyrion notes that Thorne is a charming man, quote unquote, but Mormont says that he doesn't need him to be charming. He needs someone who can turn these boys into men of the Night's Watch. He admits that it is going slowly. He asks Tyrion to deliver a message he's just received to Jon Snow. It's about Bran. Tyrion asks if it's good news or bad, and Mormont responds, both. I find it interesting that he has Tyrion do the delivering. Mm-hmm. Mostly because like you would think he'd just be like, okay, I'm just going to hand this off to John myself. Like, Excuse me? The Lord Commander of the Night's Watch descending down from his tower, overlooking to mingle? Excuse you asking Tyrion to do it, though? Also kind of an odd choice. I mean, yes, but he is the most important person there. He is the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, and he was a lord of uh, of uh, Bear Island beforehand. So, you know, he's yeah, he understands that. Does the Lord of Bear Island outrank a Lannister? No, but does the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch outrank, you know, one Lannister that has like no title or anything yet? Yes. Let's move on to scene eleven in the Red Keep. Eddard is given a similar message by Pycelle. Littlefinger arrives and asks if it is good news. He suggests that Eddard could share it with his wife. Eddard points out that his wife is in Winterfell, and Littlefinger responds, is she? This goes right into... (laughs) Yeah. This goes right into scene 12, and Littlefinger takes Eddard to the brothel. Believing he is being mocked, Eddard grabs Littlefinger by the neck and throws him up against the wall, saying, he's a funny man, a very funny man. Ned continues to choke Peter while easily pinning him against the wall using only his left hand wrapped around his throat, not even his dominant right hand, but Peter isn't strong enough to resist him. Catelyn appears on the balcony overhead and tells Ned to calm himself. Incredulously, Eddard goes in to meet her. Littlefinger, composing himself, mutters that the Starks have quick tempers, but slow minds. You are correct, Littlefinger. Very correct. In scene 13, at Castle Black, John is confronted by several of the other recruits. Rast, Pip, played by Joseph Alton, and Grin, played by Mark Stanley. They are angry with John for beating them in the training yard and breaking Grin's nose. When John says it's an improvement, they grab him and prepare to beat him up, but they are interrupted by Tyrion's arrival. Tyrion scares them off by noting that they have interesting faces, which would look good decorating spikes on King's Landing's walls. Which, just as a quick aside, it always, I always get spikes and pikes confused because like they're the same thing. Like, it's like, like you use a pike to mount a head, but I guess you also use a spike to mount a head. Eh, whatever. John says that the other boys resent him for being better than him, but Tyrion says they resent him because he was brought up in a castle and trained by a proper, formidable uh, master at arms. They were not so lucky. Pip was sent to the wall for stealing a a wheel of cheese to feed his starving sister, and Grin was left outside a farmhouse at the age of three. Tyrion gives John the letter about Bran, and that's why Tyrion was given the letter so that he could interrupt the scene of John getting beaten. Yeah, up. and also so that Tyrion can be like, "Look, I get your thoughts, but like, yeah, you also have better training than any of these people. These people have no training." Mm-hmm. And this gives a small glimpse of what uh, Book Tyrion and Book John are like. John is a very angsty emo kid and who just assumes people hate him uh for whatever reasons that's what well that's because he's used to getting a lot of hatred onto him from people for no reason from catlin yeah that's really the only and i I imagine though that catlin had enough swagger like like 
Yeah. She could order power pe- within yeah. Winterfell that her not liking him probably made other people not give him the kind of attention that his brothers and sisters were getting. Yeah. We well, we've talked about how Sansa also looks down on him in the books. Yeah. And how um well we haven't discussed this, but I guess you know, Catelyn could order people like I, I would assume Septa Mordain wouldn't like John because he's a yeah. bastard and everything. But uh, you know, I Catelyn could order people to be mean to him or to not treat him the same as the other No, that's what I'm saying. So I think it's well, like her power alone could easily make John's life miserable. And I'm assuming there's a lot of people that did not treat him well in Winterfell. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Theon doesn't really like him either. Right. But, and I said, this also gives an example of book Tyrion because he learned everybody's stories, remembered it, and then used that knowledge. Like he- Yeah. Yeah. He's very, very intelligent. In scene 14 at the brothel, Littlefinger points out that any accusation that Tyrion tried to kill Brand would be regarded as treason. The evidence that they have is sketchy and easily denied. Tyrion will most likely claim that the dagger was stolen from him, and the assassin, the only one who could, who could say otherwise, is dead. Catelyn urges Ned to trust Littlefinger, saying that he is like a little brother to her, which I'm sure is something he loved to hear. And Littlefinger agrees that he will, both of them, I guess, Ned and Littlefinger, and Littlefinger agrees that he will help keep Eddard safe in the capital for Catelyn. When Catelyn says that he is a true friend, Littlefinger asks her not to spread that around. He has a reputation to maintain. In scene 15, Cersei meets with Jaime and her chambers and berates him for throwing Bran from the window. She could have intimidated Bran into silence. He tells her to calm down. Cersei also reports that Bran has no memory of what happened, which satisfies Jaime. If somehow he remembers and Robert goes to war with him, Jaime will fight it gladly. Cersei slaps him, but Jaime stops her and tells her that he will kill he will kill everyone until the two of them are the only two people left in the world if necessary. Boy. <laughs> I mean, this is kind of where we see. And Jamie is very devoted to this relationship. Like, right. Yeah. Uh, we'll discuss it in the books. Yeah. Um, okay. Scene 16. Catelyn takes her leave of Eddard, regretting that she cannot stay and see the girls, but it is safer this way. Catelyn says that she knows the Lannisters committed this crime. Eddard agrees and says that he will find overwhelming proof and bring it to Robert. Yeah, I'm sure you will and hopes that he is still the man that Eddard once knew. Eddard tells Catelyn that Littlefinger still loves her, but she just says, does he, and kisses Eddard goodbye. She and Sir Roderick leave the city. In scene 17, King Robert is in his chambers, drinking and reminiscing about the battles with Sir Barristan Selmy, played by Ian McGillian, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. Barristan recalls his first kill was a Tyroshi soldier whose name he never knew. He killed him with a lance to the heart. Robert recalls his first kill was a soldier serving in House Tarly at the Battle of Summer Hall. The soldier thought he could end the war with a single swing of his sword, but Robert killed him instead. Robert recalls how the man begged for mercy before Robert dealt the death blow and gets melancholy thinking that the boy could have stayed in the back of the ranks of the enemy army, served the battle, and would now be unhappily married with ingrates for children of his own. Robert demands wine from his squire, Lancel Lannister, played by Eugene Simmons, a cousin of Jamie and Cersei's. Lancel is only able to pour a little as the jug has run out. Robert angrily sends him for more and orders Jamie, standing guard outside of his chamber, to come in. He then asks him about his first kill, and Jamie replies that it was one of the Kingswood Brotherhood, an outlaw band. He was only a 16-year-old squire and cut the other man's head off, meaning he had no last words. Barristan was there that day. Jamie remembers Barristan killing Simintoin with a counter move, the best Jamie had ever seen. Barristan notes that Toyn was a good fighter, but lacked stamina. Robert asked Jamie what the Mad King said when he died, if he called Jamie a traitor or begged for mercy. 
Jamie replies his the only words he said he had been saying all day, burn them all. Having silenced Robert, he takes his leave. And I have two notes here. The first saying being Robert says that he killed a Tarly at the Battle of Summerhall. According to the books, the Tarleys did not participate in this battle. Instead, they fought against Robert and defeated him in the Battle of Ashford. And my second note is that this was the first scene shot to pad for time. Mm, interesting. Yeah. One of the ways to tell, at least in this episode and the next episode, is that all the scenes uh, shot to fill in time are interior scenes. Ah. Yeah. I mean, I think this, you know, I think this scene has a good info, but I also don't think it's necessary. Like, Yeah. I like it because it gives their backstories a little bit. You see these old war horses, even though they kind of all hate each other. Um, yeah. Like agreeing about something. Yeah, I suppose you're right that it yeah. gives us a backstory that we don't get because like we'd get it in the books just from it being told in the books to <laughs> mm-hmm. us. Right. So let's, you know, we hear quite often in the books, even before we meet Barrison, that like he's one of the greatest knights of all time. Yeah. But let's move on to scene 18. Drogo's Kalasar is passing through a vast forest of bamboo. Daenerys asks Sir Jorah if the the Dothraki buy their slaves, but Jorah says no. The Dothraki do not believe in money. Instead, they take slaves as tribute from cities in lieu of sacking them. However, Jorah points out that the Dothraki sometimes feel insulted by the quality of the slaves and will sack the city anyway. Sometimes they take the slaves and other tribute and then sack the city regardless if they haven't had a good fight in months. Sometimes they just need a good fight, okay. Yeah. I feel like in the books too, we get like things about like how one Dothraki tribe will, will leave a city after sacking it and then another one shows up. Like it's just like, oh my. Yep. Yeah. Imagine living that way. Oh, I couldn't. No. I I would just join the Dothraki. Yeah. A lot of the free cities would be kind of cool to live in, but yeah, I I could not live like in a more eastern Essos. But we'll discuss those cities as they come up. Um, Yeah. Daenerys sees a Dothraki hitting a slave and orders the whole Kalasar to halt until she says otherwise. Jorah notes that she is talking like a queen. But she says, not like a queen, but like a Khaleesi. She goes for a walk in the forest, but is chased down by her brother. Viserys is furious at being ordered to halt with the rest of the horde and tells Daenerys that he does not take orders from savages or their sluts. Before he can say any more, a whip wraps itself around his throat and he is dragged to the ground by Daenerys's Dothraki bodyguard, Rakaro, who is played by Ellis Gable, who followed them with Eerie, one of Daenerys's handmaids. Translating for Ricaro, Eerie suggests killing Viserys, but Daenerys, Daenerys orders him spared. Ricaro is disappointed at not being allowed to take an ear to teach Viserys respect. Viserys orders Sir Jor- Jorah to kill the Dothraki dogs. After considering for a moment, Sir Jorah ignores him and escorts Daenerys back to the Kalasar. Amused, Ricaro makes Viserys walk back. Being forced to walk is the ultimate insult from a Dothraki. You know, here we kind of already see that Jorah's kind of making his choice on which uh, Targaryen he thinks is the right one to be backing here. Spoiler, it's not Viserys. Yeah. Well, someday he'll get crowned, and I'm sure things will work out for him when that happens. Um in scene 19 at Castle Black, John ascends to the top of the wall via a wheel and pulley lift. He joins his uncle Benjen, who tells him he wanted to be there the first time John saw the view from the top of the wall. Benjen says he is leaving. They have heard further strange reports from beyond the wall, and he is going to investigate. John asks to go with him, but Benjen says no. John is not yet ready. And Benjen is annoyed to find that John just expects that he can go due to his relationship with Benjen. Here on the wall, a man only gets what he earns when he earns it. Benjen says that they will talk more upon his return. 
man, John's going to get so many talks. Like, you know, Rob's going to talk to him more. Ned's going to talk to him more. And now Benjamin's going to talk to him more. He's, he's going to be chatted up. I think what kills me up. here, right, is yeah. that Benjamin's like, I'm annoyed, like, that you expect to just be given things like, okay, but no one's really given him any reason to think otherwise. Mm-hmm. Well, like y'all just let him come up here. Like Benjamin could have been like a very more explicit about like, I am not going to be able to treat you as my nephew at any point. Mm. For a long time, I thought that Benjamin, I'm going to do a little spoiler here um, from, from the books, I guess, but my own personal ideas for a long time. I thought Benjamin was John's father because he like kind of runs away from John at every chance that he can. And I thought that's why, like, he was, he, John is like the living embodiment of the reminder of like what type of person Benjamin was when he was younger. Yeah. Uh, I now feel differently, but it was scenes like this, because this is pretty similar to what happens in the book. I now feel differently, but it, this was one of the reasons why I felt that way for a long time. Yeah, you know, they definitely have an odd relationship. relationship with one another. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, John had a misunderstanding john's almost like sansa like sansa thinks uh you know the world she's going to be this beautiful princess and everything and john thinks that he's going to join the wall or join the um night's watch and be this you know great man serving there and everything they they both you know kind of don't have a realistic view of this world i also don't think the adults around them have at any point given them any reason to think otherwise you know what i mean like benjamin didn't really sit down and be like hey this is how it's going to be well he did try to tell john to have some bastards of his own before he did but i don't think that was enough in what he was trying to say because i think if he had worded it differently and been like no like you don't understand like you're not going to be my nephew when you're there yeah yeah we'll be family but like that bond no longer matters nearly as much as the bond of my brothers in the night's watch and serving the realm and blah, blah, yeah. blah, doing my duty. Yeah. That's something that John really doesn't learn. I mean, he comes to understand it a little bit, but it's not something that he really learns until later. I think uh, he has, yeah. a, he has a conversation with Maester Eamon at a certain point that he comes to understand what it really means, but we move on to scene 20. And Tyrion has made the acquaintance of Yorin, played by Francis McGee, a recruiter for the Night's Watch. Yorin has a rough sense of humor, which Tyrion enjoys. They swap stories about the strangest things that they've eaten, with Yorin saying bear's testicles and Tyrion proposing Dornish girls to Yorin's amusement. It's a good line. Um, it really is. Yeah. Yorin is heading out again, this time bound south. He'll take the leavings of various lords' dungeons, but half or more of his recruits will come from King's Landing. Benjen Stark enters the room and notes their laughter. He asks if Tyrion thinks the Night's Watch is a joke, a story he can spread around down south while drinking fine wines and enjoying his brothels. He points out that half the boys Tyrion has seen training will die north of the wall, some from a wildling's axe or from the cold, and that uh, they will be in pain and fear. Tyrion, slightly irritated by Benjen's words, tells him he has great respect for the Night's Watch and for Benjen as First Ranger. Benjen, amused, notes that the silence before the but in such a sentence is telling, Tyrion goes on to say that he does not believe in white walkers or giants or any of the other mythological terrors lurking beyond the wall, and that the only difference between the people of the Seven Kingdoms and the Wildlings is what side their respective ancestors happened to be on when the wall went up. Benjen agrees, saying that the Wildlings are men just like them, just harder and tougher. It's not the Wildlings that keep them awake at night, but other things. He tells Tyrion that he has never been north of the wall, so he can't tell Benjen what is out there. He leaves, and Tyrion ponders if Benjen is starting to like him. Tyrion offers to share the road with Yorin, as no one refuses a Lannister. That means they'll be sleeping in the finest inns and castles, rather than Yorin's normal ditches and hedges. 
My only note here is that this was the second scene shot to pad for time, which I find I mean, it, this one makes sense. There's similar stuff in the book to this. Yeah, scene. but it is an introduction to the character of Yorn, and it's a good scene with Benjamin Stark. Like I, th- the thing that surprised me is how well written these padded time scenes are. Yeah, in my opinion, they like, are very well written. Like you said, it's a good introduction to Yorin, who we mm. see a little bit going forward. So, like, mm. it makes and, sense to have him pretty involved. And then again, we get more of Tyrion, and then we get we get that Benjamin's really serious about the Wall, and right. you know he definitely has seen some things, even if Tyrion doesn't believe him, and even if we as the audience don't necessarily believe him. Mm. I also love Benjamin's line of saying like. My father told me that everything a person says before the word but doesn't count. Like, I, I use that line. I don't say my father yeah. told me, but like, it goes to show Benjamin's upbringing as well. Like, he is from yeah. a noble family and everything like that. And he's, he's smart. He's not, you know, a dumb Stark like some of, like his brother is. <laughs> but, he is a smart Stark. Yeah. And what have we done with him but put him on the wall? Yeah. Which I want to know why. Like, because we'll discuss it in the full spoiler section. Remind me to bring up why Benjamin's at the wall okay. again in full spoilers. We go to scene 21, and Eerie is teaching Daenerys how to speak Dothraki. Puzzled, Eerie notes that Daenerys's body is changing. She asks Daenerys if she has bled recently, and Daenerys is unable to reply. Eerie informs Daenerys that she is pregnant, noting it is a blessing from the great stallion. My only note from this scene is the Dothraki word Eri has heard teaching Daenerys is Othjagaha, and it is the Dothraki word for pride. It is derived from Jakar, the long braid worn by Dothraki warriors, which they take great pride in, as they only cut their braids when defeated. Yeah. I like that. It's an interesting little tidbit. Mm-hmm. Moving on to scene 22. Sir Jorah Mormont and Ricaro are comparing their respective weapons and ways of fighting. Jorah notes that the Dothraki Akar is a superior weapon to use from horseback with its curved blade. However, the Akar is unable to penetrate heavy armor. In that case, the Westerosi broadsword is superior. Ricaro points out that the Dothraki do not wear armor as it makes a man slow. His father taught him that speed defeats size. Jorah agrees, but the armor can also keep a man alive. He asks Ricaro about his father, a man he has heard was a great warrior. Ricaro proudly says that he was blood rider to call Barbo, Drogo's father. He asks about Jorah's father in return, and if he was a great warrior. Jorah replies that he still is a great man of great honor, and Jorah replies, betrayed him. Eerie enters the tent and tells them that they need to have something more interesting for dinner. She commands Ricaro to go and kill some rabbit or duck. Ricaro is incredulous as there's, there are no such animals nearby. Eerie suggests killing a dog, but Jorah suggests that it is unlikely Daenerys will like that. Eerie tells them that Daenerys is pregnant. Jorah thoughtfully says that they can procure a goat from the herds. After Eerie leaves, Jorah says he must ride to the nearby free city of Kohar. Ricaro points out that the Kalasar is moving eastward towards Vaistothrak, but Jorah promises to catch up as the Horde's trail is easy to find. And this is the third and final scene that was shot to pad for time. Which this is another scene that kind of seems like it had a point to it. I mean, you know, we're learning more about the different fighting styles, but we're also seeing that Jorah is going to go. As soon as soon as he finds the info, out. the yeah. immediate the immediately after he gets the info, he's like, right. I gotta go. Right. That's what I mean. It was a crucial scene that way. The whole talking about their fathers, I can see that being padding, but you know, having to leave as soon as he gets information about Daenerys, it's like that's important. But because now we know that his loyalties lie really only in getting his titles back and stuff. That- right. His yeah. loyalty is not necessarily to Daenerys, to Viserys, to anybody. He's loyal to himself. I forget if, I, I don't think I mentioned this in the last episode, but 
he's spying on them for Robert in promise of a full pardon. Like he's going to get a pardon for his crimes in Westeros. So we move on to scene 23. Jon Snow is practicing in the courtyard at Castle Black again, but this time, instead of humiliating the other boys, he shows them their mistakes and what they are doing wrong. He quickly wins over Pip and Grin with this advice. Tyrion, watching from nearby, approves. This goes to scene 24. I actually do like that scene a lot. Um, Yeah. But not much to talk about. We go to scene 24. Tyrion meets with Lord Commander Mormont, Jorah's father, and Maester Aemon, played by Peter Vaughn. They ask Tyrion how many winters he has seen. Tyrion says nine, and that the winter of his birth was three years long. Aemon says the summer that is now ending has lasted for nine years, which means a long and bitter winter to follow. Reports from the Citadel confirm that the days are growing shorter and that the seasons are changing. Winter is coming, as the Starks say, and Aemon believes this winter will bring dark things with it. Mormont reports that they are capturing wildlings every month, fleeing south in greater numbers. Many of them are saying that they have seen the White Walkers. Tyrion replies that the fishermen of Lannisport say that they have seen mermaids, but Mormont and Aemon go on, remarking that one of their rangers swore that he saw the walkers kill his companions and that he kept swearing it right up to the moment Ned Stark chopped off his head. The Night's Watch is the only thing that stands between the Seven Kingdoms and what lies beyond, and it has become an army of undisciplined boys and tired old men. Their numbers have dropped below a thousand, meaning they can no longer man the other castles on the wall or properly patrol the wilderness. They ask him to use his influence at court to send more recruits. For all his bluster and brave talk, Tyrion is unsettled by the desperation of the two men. Like, what do you want? You have these, you have this group of people that are trying to protect the realm and like, they are not getting good recruits anymore. And yeah. And he can even see, like, even though he doesn't believe in the White Walkers and everything, he can see that they're unsettled by what's going on. And even if you don't believe in it, the number of wildlings, like, increasing fleeing south, that's a threat as well. Like, it's what, What's really unsettling is the fact that there hasn't been a winter in so long, and, like, a serious winter, that all these people have forgotten. Like, this is one of those, like, when you forget history, history repeats itself kind of moments. Like... Mm-hmm. They have forgotten that these things actually do exist. So yeah. they're stories now instead of being realistic threats that like we have this wall for a reason. Well, exactly. And I mean, like, I'm going to be fair. I'm going to try to be fair to the people of this world. It was 8,000 years ago. Like how many stories do we really have from 8,000 years ago today? And true. even at that, granted, our world moves a whole lot faster than their world does um, as far as development and technology and every and civilization but yeah I, I don't know Gilgamesh I think is like the only story from that long ago yeah. that we still have today but let's move on to scene 25 in the Dothraki camp Daenerys and Drogo are lying together naked she tells him in Dothraki that it'll be a boy he asks her how she can be sure and she just says that she knows you know I will say a lot of these scenes are very, very short and pointless. Like they're very snappy. Yeah, you're right. In scene 26, fulfilling his promise, Tyrion stands atop the wall and urinates off the edge. He so he says farewell to John, and he promises to carry his good wishes to Bran when he stops at Winterfell on his way back south. John is upset that Bran will never walk again. But Tyrion points out that if you have to be a cripple, it's good to at least be a a rich cripple. He's right. Yeah. You know, if you have to be anything, it's good to be a rich anything. (laughs) Um, In scene 27, in the the final scene for this episode, in the Red Keep, Arya is summoned to a meeting with her, quote-unquote, dancing master, a man named Sirio Farrell, portrayed by Mitalos Yoromolo. Sirio is the former First Sword of Bravos, a master swordsman contracted by her father to teach her how to use her sword. Sirio calls her a boy to Arya's irritation. 
when she responds that she is a girl, he tells her it doesn't matter if she's a boy or a girl. She must be a sword. He approves of her small size, which makes her a difficult target in combat. He says that he will teach her the way of sword fighting in Bravos, the water dance, rather than the hacking and slashing of the Knights of Westeros. Eddard comes in and watches them practice. Initially, he is pleased to see Arya's training hard, but then he realizes he is training her for war. And in his mind, the clunk of the wood is replaced by the clash of steel and the screams of the dying. And that is the end of the episode. You know, do we ever find, I don't remember, do we ever find out why Sirio is no longer the first Lord of Bravos and why he is here? There's a lot, let's, let's, uh, I'm going to say full spoiler section for our listeners. So if you don't want full spoilers, have a good day. And we'll start discussing that. Okay. There's a fan theory that Sirio is uh, Jack and Hagar slash the faceless man. And he's been training Arya this whole time. I don't really subscribe to that, but I think uh, the first sword of Bravos is replaced when, oh, what is it? The governor of Bravos? I forget what the title is, but whenever the the prince of Bravos, I can't, it's an elected official. I forget what they call them. But whenever they die, the new one that's elected picks a new first sword of Bravos. I could be mm. mistaken about that, but I think that's how that works. Okay. But yeah, I just wanted to also throw out the faceless man theory. Because, you know, it's very interesting that he's here. Right. Agreed. Well, and it's interesting, too, because geographically, Bravos is actually, I think, parallel to Winterfell, geographically speaking, like the same longitude and latitude or whatever. I guess it's yeah. latitude. But because very similar to how and in uh, the real world, Pennsylvania, the state I live in, is parallel to Italy. But Pennsylvania is much colder than Italy because of the way that the wind currents on the earth go. And Bravos is a not, it does get cold there, but it doesn't get nearly as cold as Winterfell. But I don't know why I was talking about that. <laughs> um, it, it, it's interesting. You just made me think of Bravos, and I, I, a lot of Bravos facts were popping into my head. But uh, I'm going to dive into my notes on the full spoiler section. Okay. Uh, this is the first episode in which no deaths occur. It is also the only episode in this season with no deaths. And this, is, this also makes it the first episode without deaths before the start of the War of the Five Kings. To be fair, all these scenes were tiny for the most part. So there's no time for people to die. Yeah, you're not wrong. Well, I guess we didn't see what happened to that goat that uh, Daenerys is going to end up eating. That oh, that poor goat. That could have counted. My second note here is it is never revealed in the show who sent the assassin to kill Bran and who is the real owner of the dagger. In the novel, A Clash of Kings, Catelyn is told to whom Littlefinger lost the dagger. In the novel, A A Storm of Swords, two characters figure it out based on circumstantial evidence who sent the assassin. Um, I believe, if I remember correctly, those two characters are Jaime and Cersei, and they they figure it was Joffrey. Like Joffrey hired uh, the cat's paw to go and kill Bran because he yeah. over he overheard Robert talking about how they should just kill him and get it over with. So he thought it would impress Robert if he had him killed, but whatever. My next note is since Jamie and Cersei are not POV characters in the first novel, their conversation in this episode about Bran does not a- occur on screen in the novels. It is mentioned in a flashback in a storm of a storm of swords where Jamie is a POV character. Now, I mentioned previously. Is is there anything you want to bring up or should I dive? No, in? I did. I did say that I did have my note about why Benjamin is on the wall. So. Go ahead then. Because I, I I wanted to like that that's my question. Cause Ned sends Benjamin to the wall in the books, if I remember correctly. I think that's correct, yeah. And granted, John's born and Rob is born, but they're babies. Like, Benjen is the heir apparent to Winterfell and the North and everything, should something happen to Rob. And if something happened to John, like, even if you want to say, oh, John's a bastard, he can't inherit. The king is, is the Robert's 
Ned's best friend. He could have John legitimized at any time. So if Catelyn gave him no other kids besides Rob and Rob died, then there's John who he could have legitimized, blah, blah, blah. But Benjen's third in line, like for for Winterfell. So it just kind of, it kind of surprised, like not, I don't think Benjen chose to go to the wall. I think Ned sent him. That makes sense. But then you have to wonder what exactly did Benjen do? That's my question. That was one of the reasons why I thought Benjen was John's father for a long time. Like I thought Benjen slept with the Shara Dane and that ticked Ned off. So he sent him to the wall. But I don't think that anymore. But uh... yeah, but if we don't think that, is there any other logical reason for why Benjen would be at the wall? I don't know. Maybe it's something. I feel that... like we don't get enough of Benjen to really have a to be able to formulate opinion to be like, yeah, this is probably what happened. Yeah, that's something that, despite George R. R. Martin saying specifically um, in notes to his editor that the character of Cold Hands in the books is not Benjamin Stark, because the show in the final season made Cold Hands Benjamin Stark. People think that Cold Hands is Benjamin Stark. I want to know what the hell Benjamin's doing. Uh, George R. R. Martin has said that he's not dead, that he's doing something, and he's not Cold Hands. So what the hell is he doing? <laughs> Where is yeah, he? Yeah, a good question. Yeah. But yeah, maybe it's something that will be revealed in later books. Maybe it'll be revealed what Benjen did to get sent to the... Because we're going full spoilers, folks. Bran can start seeing the past and even, I think, see a little bit of the future, if I'm not mistaken, when his powers start manifesting. Yeah. So maybe he'll see whatever Benjen did that made Ned send him to the wall. Well, you know, you have to imagine if whatever he's currently doing has anything to do with why he was sent. Unless it just has something to do with the Stark blood overall and, like, for some reason, because, you know... There has to be Ned a Stark at the wall that, like, or something. Yeah, like it's, Ned does mention like the Starks have manned the wall for centuries. Like, yeah. does a Stark also have to have blood on the wall for some reason? Because well, we know a Stark being in Winterfell is important. Like, so supposedly Brand the Builder, if I'm remembering correctly, did use blood magic when he was building the wall. So maybe there's something that the Stark blood, you know, does tie them to the wall somehow. Maybe there has to be one there. And, and maybe that, they did have bastards there or something, but yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. There was a, nobody else. And Ned was like, I have to send you to the wall. Yeah. You have to go because they do keep to the old ways and like Yeah. It's all stuff that it's like Ned if 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 any of this is true, it's all stuff that it's like, Ned, why the f- didn't you tell Rob or somebody? <laughs> like 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 all these these kids need to know these things. Why are you so stupid, Ned? Or even any, like the maester should have been able to tell them or like Catelyn should have known in right. the case of something to be like, I know I need to inform you of this. Like it should have been written down somewhere. Yeah. Like, yeah. like Ned, you could have a heart attack at any moment like, or something could happen like in to In case you. of emergency, break this box and learn about your path. Yeah. I don't know. There's something going on with the Starks. I want to find out what what Benjen did. If he did do anything to be sent to the wall, or if, like we're saying now, it's some sort of blood oath that there has to be a Stark at the wall or something. Who knows? I don't know. I guess George knows. There's a lot of... I'm going to have to look and see. There's a great show. If you're listening to us and you don't know who these people are, The Order of the Green Hand, they do fantastic shows about book theories and everything. They get a little out there with them. Uh, a little more crazy than even us, but they uh, they have some good, great, great content, and I recommend checking them out. Don't replace them with with us, or don't replace us with them, but check them out. I mean, we cover a lot of different stuff too, so yeah. But I don't know. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Or no, I think that, like I said, I think the most interesting thing is just what where Benjamin is. Like Benjamin, what's going on, bro? Yeah, maybe, maybe. He, because now I'm thinking, I'm trying to remember. It's th- like one of the rumors is that the Knights King, the 13th Lord Commander or whatever, that took another for a wife and all that. There were like one of the rumors is that he was a Stark 
and like he fathered children with her and stuff um i don't know maybe uh and the starks have the blood of the first men and so do the wildlings that's something too is why when the wall went up would people choose to live on the other side of it like why would they be like oh you know there's horrible things over on this side of the wall let's live here like they say they say it was for freedom or whatever that they didn't want to be part of the seven kingdoms and then there's other people that theorize that humans didn't build the wall that it was built by the others to keep humans from coming but who knows all these crazy theories that we'll be talking about over well it'll be months from now when we cover the later stuff but yeah anyway let's let's go into the outro then i guess that concludes this week's episode of the once again podcast thank you for joining us any questions comments or critiques can be addressed to our email at onceagainpod at gmail.com follow us at onceagainpod all one word on twitter and instagram if you are feeling generous and would like to contribute to the podcast we have several tiers available on patreon.com slash onceagainpod also a like and a share would be greatly appreciated thank you have a wonderful day and remember We will entertain you. We will always entertain you.